This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, we have such an exciting podcast today. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, it's a podcast that has been both requested, but that actually we had wanted to do for some time. And for sure, and we're very excited to have um, Dr. Ravi Patel on the show today with us. Um, yeah, this is this is very very exciting, and. Um, He's a he's a superstar of the field of neonatology. He is um, one of these young neonatologists that when you look up and you see the amount of work that they've actually accomplished in mm-hmm. in what what I guess you could say the early phase of their career is quite astonishing. I mean the the caliber of the the research work of the publication and and Ravi is somebody who is not uh, who's a multi talented individual. His research. His work on with EB Neo social media. I mean, he's he's uh, really doing it. So it's very very exciting to talk to him today. Um, do we have any announcements before we begin today, or before we uh, give Ravi's bio? I don't think so. No, yeah, just uh, board review podcast will be released tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We're talking about BPD definitions. It's going to be fun. Um, but yeah, without um, further the. I guess we can tell people that the neonatal network grants is application is open. And um, yeah, if you want to get some funding for your research project, it's a very straightforward process. Uh, and you can find out more information on our website, www.the-incubator.org. Okay. So for the people who are like, who's this Dr. Ravi Patel thing? <laughs> who, who's saying that? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally, I would, I would be curious to know who would not know him at this point. But uh, Ravi is uh, an associate professor of pediatrics and director of neonatal clinical research at Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. He's passionate about evidence-based medicine. His research interests include necrotizing enterocolitis, neonatal transfusion, caffeine therapy, and perinatal epidemiology. He is an executive committee member of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on neonatal perinatal medicine. He is also a principal investigator in the NICHD Neonatal Research Network, chair of the International Society for Evidence-Based Neonatology, that's IBNEO that we mentioned earlier, and president of the Southern Society for Pediatric Research. Uh, Dr. Patel received his MD from the Medical College of Georgia and an MSc from Emory University. Um, yeah, without further ado, please uh, join us in welcoming to the show, Dr. Ravi Mengal Patel. Um, Dr. Ravi Patel, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It's great to be here. I love the pod, so it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's fantastic to actually be here with both of you. 
Yeah, this is this is a long overdue interview. Daphne and I have been mm-hmm. talking about having you on the show for a while, and then uh, our, you're busy. You're busy neonatologist, so we're very happy that we're finally getting to uh, record this episode. Um, for um, so, I, I guess we like to start our interviews when we're talking to neonatologists and and try to find out a little bit about what was the path that led them to the NICU because um, there's always a path somehow. It's not something that you're you're born saying, I want to be resuscitating preterm babies. Um, if I if I remember correctly, you mentioned to us that uh, you you the path of to the NICU for you was uh, paved by a, by a pediatric surgeons. Is that is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I started med school thinking I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon, and actually, one of the first rotations I did was pediatric surgery. And you'd start the morning in the NICU, and I think you know one of the lessons learned was what what what. Um, seems like a great profession when you get into the daily routine mm. it may be very different and i knew very quickly because i spent time in the operating room and i found it so tedious and i was always <laughs> waiting to leave the operating room and, and go back to the nikki to round and that was the, the first sign that, that may, maybe i i uh i have a different calling and, uh-huh. and that experience uh you know being in the nikki and rounding and, and it was just such a foreign place and it was very it, it felt very at the cutting edge of um, of medicine at that time um, okay, I, I thought that I thought, I thought you were going to say oh, something. No. Sorry about no, that. No, I was uh, gonna. I'm grateful that you had that experience because we're lucky to have you over, as we say on the light side here. <laughs> yeah, and, and nothing against pediatric surgeons. That's I think right. they're there. We have wonderful colleagues who do amazing things, and sure. uh, and we, we couldn't do what we do without. I them. think we should be thankful for the pediatric surgeons for exactly. uh, bringing to our field so many mm-hmm. people, myself included, because <laughs> like I was telling you. <laughs> So maybe it's uh, maybe one of their biggest contribution to the field of neonatology is just pushing a lot of people towards the NICU. Um, it makes me, sense um, though, right? Um, we're people who we like procedures, we like the acuity, we we don't shy away from the the critical aspect, um, but we we like some of those those ra- the, not maybe not rounding. I love rounding, but I I'm aware that not many neonatologists like rounding. <laughs> so. Um, so you you um you practice in 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 Georgia and and the thing that that you are probably the most famous for Ravi is your work on necrotizing enterocolitis and um before we talk a little bit about neck uh, I wanted to know again like what how, how exactly did you get interested in in pursuing uh research work and quality improvement projects on the topic of 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 necrotizing enterocolitis over over something else was was it again was it a person was it was it an experience that uh that led you led you to that yeah you know i still remember the very first baby i took care of that had neck as a first year fellow in my first rotation and it was such a striking disease you know from just initial onset of symptoms to rapid progression, needing intubation, and then, you know, within 12 hours headed towards surgery and feeling like you, you know, no matter what you did, you couldn't, you couldn't interrupt the course of the disease. Mm. And at that time, I was, this was, you know, very early in my fellowship, I was looking at research opportunities and and there was something that stuck with me about just how mysterious and how frustrating that disease was. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to work with a researcher that um, had a lab at Emory. Uh, her, her name was Dr. Patricia Denning. And she was really interested in kind of understanding a little bit of the pathogenesis of NEC with working with urine models. And so I spent most of my fellowship trying to understand gut development and kind of what the, what was the normal course of gut maturation in this mice model. And 
you know, we understood that there's this really big change in terms of this immature intestine that was very leaky that starts to get less leaky and maybe more mature. And, and one of the things we discovered was that it was maybe because of bacteria that were colonizing the, the murine gut. Mm-hmm. That then led to us actually feeding these little mice back, probiotic um, bacteria. We gave them actually lactobacillus rhamnosus, and we showed that you could accelerate the maturation of the gut. And so that was my first kind of foray into into studying um, necrotizing colitis really to understand kind of susceptibility and and, um, and specifically about the kind of leakiness of the gut and, and tight junctions and, and also my first experience with probiotics really as a in the lab and then I kind of had a come to moment of you know as I was entering my third year of do I really want to spend uh, my life in the lab you know working with mice mm. and uh I think this is, you know, there's many people who've probably had similar experiences. It's a rite but... of passage. It's a rite <laughs> of passage. Like, do I want to spend my la- my life in the lab? <laughs> and I love what I, you know, I, I love the kind of science and the ability to ask questions and get rapid answers. But one of the things that was very challenging for me was this kind of very, very um, diving deep into very narrow areas that... Mm-hmm. I think was felt like I was farther and farther away from the infant in the NICU. And, and, um, and I always loved reading papers and journals. You know, many of the things you highlight where you read a paper and you say, you know, I could apply this tomorrow mm-hmm. in my practice, mm-hmm. changing pulse ox targets, feeling good about using caffeine. You know, these are things you read the study and you say, okay, this is, this is ready to, you know, this is really at the end of kind of the translational spectrum of things that are very applicable. And, and that always, I think, excited me about clinical research. And so I took a big shift at the end of my training to, you know, from the lab to really say I wanted to pursue clinical research, although I had at that time not really done anything. So it was, mm. it was uh, felt like I'd missed an opportunity. I had to play a little bit of catch up and was fortunate to get support for training when I, when I joined as faculty to kind of catch up and, and learn some of the, um, the tools and, and uh, methods for clinical research. I'm struck by how humble you are because you're, basic science research is like paradigm shifting. Um, And the fact that you were able to do that like in fellowship is amazing. And then you said, but you know what, I can still, let me, let me take on this uh, clinical kind of translational work. Um, And you were able to do that in a pretty short amount of time. How did you do it? Yeah, I was, um, you know, it took a little while. I, I was a little bit of a risky proposition when I was looking for faculty <laughs> positions because, you know, I, I said I want to do clinical research. I didn't have a single clinical <laughs> research study, no training, you know. I don't blame, I don't blame, uh, you the know, skeptics. chiefs and chairs to say, uh, are we sure we want to invest in this person? But I, I was pretty persistent and, and very clear. And, and what I really spent a lot of time negotiating for was, um, time, mm. protected time for research, as well as uh, pursuing a master's in clinical research mm-hmm. uh, and a K award. And, and that was part of kind of my recruitment. And I ended up doing all those things. And, and I think that time and, and really the training, which I would say is essential today for those that are interested in, in a clinical research career is really getting the tools and um, the training necessary was, was, I think, very important. So that was important for my career in terms of learning good epidemiologic methods, understanding biostatistics. And also I think one of the most important things is actually learning where you, you know, the things you don't know mm. and, and having, uh, and realizing there's always going to be somebody out there that probably is going to be, you have more expertise in this area and, and knowing when you can reach out to, for example, 
experienced biostatisticians that that probably are going to be able to help you in more ways than you, you would have realized, um, you know, not having understood kind of the, the nuances of, of statistics and methods. Yeah, I think this is somewhere where our training is really failing. And you're echoing yeah. something that um, Eric Jensen s- spoke of on the podcast about learning the intricacies of of research design methodology is key if you want to actually conduct uh, meaningful research, something that Wally Carlo spoke about. Um, and I feel that maybe some trainees are not planning to do a career or, or planning a career in research, and, and maybe they don't need as much, like they may not need like a full master's degree. But there's definitely a middle ground that we're not hitting when it comes to our training. And I'm not sure if that's something that should come in medical school, in probably in residency or fellowship. But I mean, do, do you agree that there's maybe a, a shift that needs to happen in, in how we, we train our, our future neonatologists? Yeah, I think it's uh, that's a great point. And I, I agree. I think it's challenging, partly because the methodology of, of research mm-hmm. has changed so much. And some of the tools used are, are, not, are, are kind of hard to grasp. You know, we do a five-day course that I was part of as a fellow and kind of a boot camp for research. And I Mm -hmm. think you get a very superficial kind of good high-level framework for what you need to do, but it's really insufficient. And and then, you know, between that five-day course and, you know, two-year master's degree program, there really isn't anything in between that, at least for a lot of trainees to get that. And I'm not sure exactly what the best strategy is. I think there there probably is this need to kind of fill that gap, even for people to better understand and read papers. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's newer methods that are coming out. Uh, you know, Bayesian analysis is one that's been an, an area of focus for the Neonatal Research Network. And I think there's a lack of, of common understanding of those things. So it's tough when you're reading this paper out there and, and, you, and you don't fully understand the, the methods. How, how do you actually then apply it to your practice or interpret it? And, and I think we have some opportunity there. Um, and, and maybe it's things, part of our motivation for kind of our EBNEO journal clubs was partly mm-hmm. trying to do it in bite sizes of, of tackling some of these questions that you know, meet the needs of learners who aren't going to sit through a you know an hour-long lecture or, or a two-hour-long course um, on, on one specific topic to try to give at least some high-level view of things. But uh, I agree. I'm, I'm not sure uh, how we can address that challenge. I'd be curious if you had thoughts on that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think I think it has to do with, with workshops and, and really um, taking a different... In my opinion, it has to do with taking a different approach. I think people are going to fall on one side or the other of, of, a, of an artificial fence. Either you, you want to take part in research, and in which case you will need more sophisticated training in order to conduct the research. But I think if you're saying, no, I just want to be a clinical physician, I do not want to take part in research activities, then you probably need a little bit of a of a boot camp in order to be able to critically appraise the literature that's going to be coming out that you will be reading that you will have to interpret in order to uh, change or not your practice. So um, I think there's probably um, a little uh, there's probably a middle ground where mm-hmm. we can provide enough to residents and fellows so that they could decide whether they're interested in in pursuing more or less um, and and creating these avenues. I think, but it's it's definitely something that will be important in the future. Yeah, I think. Um like you're saying, I mean, it really underscores, I think, where some of the deficiencies are that even just even just in being a practicing clinician, like to to use evidence-based medicine in your daily practice, you really have to understand some of those basics. Some of those basics that are not really taught in your college statistics course, right? Uh, using um, statistics in interpreting 
um, data is different than, you know, learning the, the basics of statistics. So, yeah, I think we, we, maybe, maybe we'll all collaborate on that then. In the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, the ideas of breaking down walls of, mm-hmm. of learning, which mm-hmm. used to be so much of what you learned about research was, you know, based on, on where you trained and who taught you mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. a classroom setting. And I think now there's this wonderful community out there and a lot of, I think, open access, you know, kind of free open access education, YouTube videos. I mean, I have learned a lot from just watching videos over the course of the years in terms of, of statistics and just little pieces of mm-hmm. things that are excellent. And I think there's opportunity, you know, a lot more opportunity today than maybe 10 years ago in just self-directed learning. Um, but, you know, that that always requires kind of motivation for people to pursue that. I I, I wanted to go back to Nick because I feel like we're – I. I <laughs> We moved I, away too fast. <laughs> we moved away too quickly. Um, the I, I think you have a very novel approach to the management of of NEC, and and I wanted to ask you before I I ask you to reveal what's the the cure for neck. Um, do you think the approach to neck will come in the form of? a single or maybe a couple of interventions, or do you think that truly the way we'll reduce the rates of neck to a, a negligible number is through um, care bundles, you know, where we have a bunch of interventions that when packed together, we really get our rates to be very, very low. Um, and I think both both approaches have been discussed in the literature, but I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are on, on which one is probably uh, holds the, the key to the future. Yeah, I, I would say I mean, that's a great question. I, I think that care bundles are going to be what um, addresses that. I think neck, like BPD, is a multifactorial disease with multiple drivers, and, and so it's and it's also a challenging disease because it probably there there are different phenotypes or or um, types of NEC that might have different drivers that need to be addressed. And so I think care bundles are are probably where the best opportunity is and addressing. But I think are the key drivers, you know, non-human milk feeding, um, inconsistent feeding, where you know improvements in use of mother's own milk, donor human milk, well, that's not possible. Standardized feeding regimens are important. And then there's this component of dysbiosis where addressing antimicrobial stewardship is important and and maybe probiotic therapy or supplementation. And then something about abnormal oxygen, gut oxygenation and oxygen saturation targets. And I think you know that that bundle of things, and you could expand it with other other um, items that might be based on on you know less less certain evidence. Will will work, and I think we've seen that um, across a number of centers that really have shown if you can apply what we know today in your unit, you can actually achieve important reductions in NEC. And we've seen that from reports from. University of Utah, Oregon Health Sciences University, a number of places, and even large um, groups have shown declines in NEC. But but I don't think that gets us to zero. I think the challenge is that there still is this residual um, amount of neck that we still don't fully understand what why that infant developed NEC. And, and we have that in our own QI work where we do neck huddles where a baby develops mm-hmm. neck and we go through what are all the things we could have done to prevent it? And you, you know, all the boxes are checked that we did all the things we think could have prevented it. And what were the risk factors? And, and none of the boxes are checked. And you're you're mm-hmm. scratching your head. Why did this baby develop mm-hmm. NEC? And I think there's still some areas that that um, I think we don't know enough about. And, and and that might be actually more upstream. Maybe it's things that that are influencing gut development in utero. In utero, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, and, and I I wanted then to then jump. 
on that to to the discussion of uh, on probiotics. I mean, um, it seems that probiotics hold a lot of promise, and there's so much discussion around the topic of probiotics for preterm infants. Um, why why do you think um, there's so much? Why do you think there is so much resistance to this to this uh, this new intervention? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating. Um you know, kind of evidence translation question, which is, you know, there's all this evidence out there and yet there's this kind of gap between the evidence and actually translating to practice. And, and that differs around the world. If you go, you know, take a long flight to Australia, New Zealand, you know, most of their Nikis are using it. And and here in the United States, it's it's a minority, I'd say probably 20, 30%, um, although we've seen increases in, in that proportion. And I think there's probably a few things. One was my sense was there was a lot of NICUs that were interested in probiotics after the ProPrimes trial came out mm-hmm. of Austria and New Zealand that showed an re- important reduction. And then there was this this unfortunate case of a of an infant who died from a contaminated probiotic that that developed that was contaminated with mold. It was a mm-hmm. single case that the product was pulled off the market, but I, you know there was an FDA alert that came out. And I think that gave a lot of people pause, rightfully so, about, about the concerns about quality. And I think that stuck around um, for a lot of hesitancy about, about that worry, even though it was a single case. And today we have, compared to 10 years ago, or, or you know, when, um, when the program's child came out, I think we have a lot more products that have better quality that are available there's probably also a push from industry that wasn't there as well that I think has led to some more uptake, um, but there's a natural hesitancy. And for some units, you know, it, unless there's an FDA approved preparation, that's, that's kind of the line mm-hmm. that they have in terms of waiting for that. Um, and there's trials ongoing. I, as a disclosure, I serve on the data safety monitor board of one of those trials that's looking at an FDA approved product. Um, and, and so I think there's some people that are waiting and and I think the other issue is just you know our, our mental frameworks around data and around evidence and you know on a daily basis in the United States there's probably a baby that develops NEC mm-hmm. and um, and um, if we continue doing what we're doing you know if in your unit I always say when people are hesitant I, I ask them you know what's your neck incidence and are you happy with where it's at. Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then the next question is, well, what are you going to do to dec- decrease it? Well, we're already doing donor milk and we're already you know, doing mm-hmm. these efforts on increasing mother's own milk and we've done antimicrobial stewardship. So what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. When you look at the bag of, of what I would say is um, evidence-based approaches to reduce NEC, I think you know, that's a very small bag of things that you can choose from. And, and in that for me is, is probiotic supplementation should be one of those things where I think it's worth consideration and, and each unit then has to kind of decide what their comfort level is and where their incidence is and and, um, and make choices on that. But I, I do think it should be one of those things that's considered. Um, um, you're also, oh, go ahead, Daphne, I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to say, you know, it is a small bag and sometimes we feel so hopeless when it comes to neck, but I think, um, even just this discussion with you today is a good reminder of how far we've come in terms of NAC research and, and reducing the incidence of NAC. Um, we talk a lot about definitions on here and how can we study things. Um, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on just our, our definitions of NAC, uh, 
you know, the future of diagnosing next so that way we can make better choices. Um, and, and I think have, have more effective studies if, you know, if, if we had more information diagnostically on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the definitions and diagnosis of neck mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a big challenge. And one of the concerns has been whether in clinical trials of NEC okay. that, that what you're getting is contamination with, mm-hmm. with, you know, focal intestinal perforation or spontaneous intestinal perforation, which I, I think nowadays people are probably more attuned to than they were in the past, where with just bell staging, you, you know, depending on how it's applied, that that is a challenge. And, and bell staging was never intended to be a case definition or mm-hmm. diagnostic definition. It was really to stage the progression of NEC and to guide, guide management. And it's just been adopted now as the most common diagnostic definition. There's groups that are trying to get at what are the clinical characteristics that um, that might be important features or, or diagnostic criteria for NEC, although I would say there's no consensus yet. And the biggest challenge is what's your gold state? You know, if you're looking at um, at any senior trying to come up with different measures or criteria, what's the gold standard? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the challenge is. Um, w- what's needed to go forward, I think, if we have better biomarkers, at least some biomarkers that go along with um, that that are very correlated with any seer specific to, to gut injury that might differentiate from sepsis or other conditions, that, that I think is... Um, uh, what I think will hopefully be out. There's been a number that have been examined. I think none of them probably have the kind of performance that that's that's ideal. And, and there's a number of groups looking into that. And I think, you know, in the same way you mentioned Eric Jensen, you know, really took an evidence-based approach to the mm-hmm. diagnosis of, you know, diagnostic criteria for BPD. You know, I think there's opportunities to do that for NEC, really to kind of step back and say, okay, let's, let's, let's look at how useful these various criteria, abdominal distension, bloody stool, um, portal venous gas, you know, pneumatosis, and how well they um, they correlate with NEC. And, and one of the most striking things was a study that was done by Cheryl Battersby at the UK where, where half of the cases of NEC in that country that were part of their definition didn't actually have pneumatosis. Mm. So you, you're thinking, okay, that's, that's classic NEC, and yet half of those cases didn't have that. Mm-hmm. That's been reported by others, and, and I think it's it's this. Maybe there's these different phenotypes that we haven't um, come across. So a lot more work to be done in that area, and um, I think it really matters because you know how you diagnose a baby or a patient depends determines how you monitor them, how you treat them, what their outcomes are, whether they're eligible for specific therapies, and, and I think that is it, it's really a critical piece of, of clinical care is is improving on how we diagnose different diseases and conditions. Yeah, pneumatosis is one of these things where it feels very archaic, right? If that's the criteria for NEC, I mean, if you're waiting for uh, pneumatosis to develop to be seen on x-ray, there's definitely a, a long process that starts off much earlier. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's it's not really surprising, but it's it's also highlighting how today we do have new technologies and we have so many more ways to monitor our patients. Maybe it's time that we, we at least aim to um, detect and pick up things a bit earlier before the intestine perforates. That'd be, that'd be mm-hmm. nice. <laughs> and I think there's probably a spectrum of, of you know, the neck, neck might be the end result of, of kind of gut injury inflammation mm-hmm. that's that's going on. And I think yeah. there's opportunities to understand that. And as neck becomes more uncommon, and I think right. that's going to be the challenge as, as the incidence goes down, it's going to be a harder entity to study. But upstream mm-hmm. of neck, there might be these surrogate measures that uh, might, might actually allow us to better understand what's driving 
whether it's dysbiosis or gut inflammation or, or biomarkers of gut injury that might be helpful, you know, if we had the same markers of, you know, high blood pressure being a surrogate measure for mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease, and maybe we can target strategies to reduce high blood pressure. And eventually that will help reduce heart disease. You know, we, do we have, I don't think we have today, what the surrogate measure is for NEC that might be targeted, you know, that uh, might be targeted that can help reduce that outcome. That's maybe more common, easier to study and, and easier to quantify. All right. I, I got all my neck questions out of the way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I can well, keep talking about neck. So I know. That's, I, know. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, I think that's what's tremendous about your um your career is that I, I mean, you've studied a lot of things and so that's uncommon, right? So most people pick an area of interest and that's what all their work is related to. Um, but, uh, you've been on some, you know, groundbreaking papers in, in five or six different topics. So one, how do you choose what to work on next? And, and two, you know, is it overwhelming to, you know, it's hard, it's hard to be an expert in everything, but you're, I think you're as close as it gets. <laughs> you're, you're the Elon Musk of neonatology. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you for that that kind comment. I, um, I I sometimes don't feel that way, but uh, and I, I hope never to emulate Elon Musk on tr- Twitter. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, I uh, I probably violated <laughs> he meant that one of the. All <laughs> that definitely I, I meant I meant yeah. <laughs> I I um I, I probably violated one of the rules that's often given to trainees and, and early early career folks, which is you know pick a, a, an area to focus on and stay focused on that. And that's that's very common advice. And part of the reason, and I received that advice as well. And and um, and part of the reason I I strayed a little bit from that is because I think. You know, follow what excites you, what's passionate, and that was always kind of where I've stayed. And and so, you know, the areas of interest have been in, in NEC, but also neonatal transfusion, caffeine therapy, and, and uh, survival of of uh, extremely preterm infants. And I think also it was that the opportunities as fields shift shift over time. And so, you know, I was very interested in caffeine. That was one of the first, you know, as a transition from clinical from working in the lab to clinical research. How can we optimize the use of caffeine? And 10 years ago, I really wanted to do this clinical trial of prophylactic caffeine use, which is you start caffeine on admission to the unit versus, you know, you wait till the infant develops apnea. And that, at that time, it seemed like that was a very pertinent question. You know, fast forward to 2022 and you look at data, I, I think most places now are just starting when, when babies are admitted to the unit, just starting routinely on caffeine. And so the field has shifted. And now if you wanted to do that, it would actually be a study of actually delaying initiation of caffeine because most people are actually just starting it as a, as a routine, which was different maybe 10, 15 years ago. And so I think that, that those opportunities in certain areas, you know, for example, caffeine therapy and, and those questions, you know, can, can shift as time goes along. And, um, and that I think, you know, working in different areas allows you to, to really – adapt and change as, as questions, new questions arise, as fields change, as, as what's pertinent in neonatology today might not be 10 years ago. And that's been part of my interest and, and why I, I've really valued working in different fields. Although it's challenging, it's hard to keep up with with what's going on in, in different areas. And um, I think as, as necrotizing arachlitis, you know, we, we just finished a large prospective study at, at a few centers, um, really focused on studying NEC and, and 
one of the challenges is we've done so many things to reduce the incidence of NEC. You know, we were we we've had about a, a fifth of the anticipated number of cases that mm. we were expecting when we started this study. You know, in 2017. So it's, it's a, a hard thing to study. To have. It's a great problem <laughs> to have, and and actually, probably the most important thing is, yeah. is we've we've reduced um, NEC, but I think it makes it harder. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be harder in centers that are adopting these practices. You know, these bundles of of um, strategies. If you really want to study NEC, and you have to you know enroll two, three hundred prospective infants to to get enough enough babies to even in make some sense. I think that that's where these you know opportunities shifted 10 years ago that that wasn't the, that was not the case you know we had a when we first started working on our neck prevention efforts we had about a 12% incidence of NEC and um, yeah. and that's a lot lower now yeah i think i think this is what you're you're touching on on a on an issue in training that is that is in my opinion paramount and the idea of quote unquote pick your lane right mm-hmm. early on is the worst advice uh you could take as a trainee and i recommend people uh, reading the book by michael lewis called the undoing project where he talks about uh the work done by um amor tversky tversky and daniel kahneman who are uh nobel prize winning economists but the idea was you should have no attachment to any project you you take on because you may quickly realize that the project was not a good idea and your only way to keep moving forward is to quote unquote dump the project and move on to something else and this idea that um, there's this endowment effect that as as and the sunk cost fallacy where the more you pour in the more you're like no now I have too much invested I have to keep going is it, terrible because in many cases, especially in the case of research, it's so demanding. Um, you're fighting for resources, you're fighting for time, and it could lead to burnout and unhappiness. So I think um, I think you are, Ravi, the example of, no, per, if, if something piques your interest one day, just pursue it. And mm-hmm. it's it doesn't matter that it's not like, you. it doesn't matter that you said you like neurology and now suddenly you have to look at something related to GI. Just, just do it because you <laughs> might stumble on something amazing and make a meaningful contribution. So um, yeah, I, I don't have a question, but I, I really, really appreciate your comment. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, I'm going to have to. I have a. I have a new book to put on my reading pile. That's yeah, right. yeah, highly. Recommend. But you know, before before we started, we talked about uh, you know things like breaking down silos. But the the tr- the same is true within neonatology in our different areas of interest. So we different people who uh, you know gravitate to a different topic may look at a problem differently and so that kind of cross pollination i think is super exciting and saying you know if we're doing this in bpd why not in neck or if we're doing this in neurodevelopment then why not in nutrition um so i think that having being dynamic having the flexibility um is is ripe for new research questions yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think this is an area where I would say for some of my basic science colleagues where, you know, we study disease X and the model of disease X and we look at therapy A on disease X, you know, it, it's possible that there's mm-hmm. common pathways that affect a lot of our diseases, you know, inflammation or, or other pathways that might influence BPD, ROP. And, um, and I think there could be a lot of advantage of actually looking and collaborating in terms of, of kind of more broadly assessing neonatal disease models for for similar therapies. I think that makes it much more attractive for industry and clinical trials if you find this new therapy that actually shows effects across multiple different disease models 
that 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 really could be one a fundamental if it moves forward and is successful changing the the outcomes for infants with um with particularly in, in therapies that are for prevention and um i think we still are a little bit siloed in terms of i study you know i'm looking at, at therapy a and i'm focused only on on nec or only on bpd and not really thinking more broadly across kind of across a number of diseases. We do that in clinical trials. We have you know a primary mm-hmm. outcome, but we look at a lot of secondary outcomes. And sometimes what we find is actually an effect that we weren't anticipating on a secondary outcome. Um, but I, I haven't seen that as much in the preclinical work. But I think that's an opportunity. And and one other area that I, I've really been um, very fortunate to kind of get get experience with is actually. You know, as we're breaking down silos, actually the collaboration between patient families mm. and clinicians and researchers. And that has been, I think, one of the most fruitful experiences that I've had over the last five or so years, particularly working with the NEC Society, which mm-hmm. is this wonderful organization that is um, was founded by uh, somebody by the name of Jennifer Camberster, mm-hmm. who lost she's her a rock son, star. Micah. To, she's awesome. Her and, son, uh, Micah. And, Micah, yeah. yeah. And they have really brought together, um, I, I think in terms of breaking down silos, bringing together, you know, researchers and clinicians who are maybe working in, in very narrow areas and, and really to try to get get um, the groups together to think together, to work together, to collaborate together, um, which I think has been fantastic. Yeah, I think that part of the next society, the idea of bringing in parents to actually move shift the 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 shift the goalpost where instead of having a committee of physicians or researchers saying this is what's important to study and look at parents and saying what matters to you what should we really focus on is so simple and so trivial and yet so groundbreaking that mm-hmm. Daphne and I often say like why is this not happening across the board and I think um and I think whoever is focusing on any area of research, if if you take that approach, I think you there, there's definitely um, success at the end of of this of this road for anyone uh, who pursues the same model. Um, yeah, I, and we yeah. we've just finished uh, kind of a, a, a few year effort where we've gotten to we got together an equal number of clinicians and researchers and patient families and try to come up with what, what are your priorities mm-hmm. in the in so areas cool. of, of, of NEC? And, and we're going to share that next month. So um, I'm sure, you know, that what, what people came up with, but there's certain areas that are incredibly important to patients that almost, mm-hmm. there's almost nothing out there. You know, what are the outcomes of infants develop neck after two years of age? You know, there is almost, mm-hmm. you know, there is such scant amount of information that's no. hugely important. Out of sight, mm-hmm. out of mind, right? They get discharged from the mm-hmm. NICU and that's it. They're no longer our problem. And if somebody yeah, it's is not a pediatrics in, issue, right? Not a neonatology yeah. issue. Yeah. Really cool. And, um, and so that, that's not something I would have thought about until, you know, re- really once you start hearing from patients and families, you know, this, the importance of that, where we're really saying so we, we really need to kind of rethink, you know, where, where we're focusing our, our research priorities on. Well, when you think about, sorry, when you think about medicine, I, I mean, one thing that has always held true is like a, a, strong group of parents have always propelled medicine forward, especially, uh, I mean, patients in general, but especially in the field of pediatrics. So that's neat. Why not invite them to the table without them having to, you know, push shoulder their way in, you know, very cool. 
Go ahead, Ben. Since we're talking about research, I have to get this in because I feel like shortly we'll be saying we're out of time. There's no time to ask. But <laughs> you, uh, you've done great work with the NICHD uh, Neonatal Research Network. And I wanted to talk to you about the paper uh, where that you first authored that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the paper is called Causes and Timing of Death in Extremely Preterm Infants from 2000 through 2011. And that it's a very inconspicuous uh, title, but for the people who remember, really that paper sparked a massive discussion in the field of neonatology because you guys started reporting outcomes for babies at 22 weeks. And and I feel that the discussion really exploded after this paper came out. Can you, I'm always curious for the young uh, investigators who are listening to the podcast, can you walk us through what happens when you complete the manuscript, you submit it to the New England, it gets accepted, it gets published, and then the waves of requests and questions come in? Like, how do you, how does that, what happens? Yeah, well, I'll start with, you know, I had a wonderful mentor, um, Dr. Barbara Stoll, who is our chair of pediatrics at Emory, and she was just the most gracious mentor who kind of took me under her wing, and she was our principal investigator for the NICH network, and then... I, you know, I had early on kind of that was that was the dream of of um, when I started off of kind of what I wanted to be and and one of the things I was shooting for and I've been fortunate to to transition and work with just some incredibly um, talented and brilliant researchers and it is a very you know submitting to the New England Journal or, or high impact journals are very stressful because they. Um, th- they're um, very intensive in their reviews and critiques and and. Um, and and so it is quite it's quite the relief when it actually gets accepted. Um, and then I think you know the striking thing is actually that people you know when you read it you you're never really sure what the impact of anything you publish is going to be. Are pe- do people care? Are they going to read it? Mm. And so one of the one of the things with that is just is, is how, how many people reach out and actually care about what you're doing and actually intellectually engage with your work and and ask you questions about you know what about this and you know why do you think this is and. And some of that is through speaking engagement. Some of that's just through email. And it, um, I think it keeps you going as a researcher because you realize, you know, that there, there's actually a lot of people out there who are very interested. And I remember getting an email from an adult oncologist in Houston that read yeah. the paper and actually was asking about questions. And I was thinking, you know, I would have never imagined you know, cool. that to happen. And so there's these people that are really interested in this work. And and um, so that that was, I think, one of those experiences about about. Um, when it comes out, that, but there's lots of research that's excellent and wonderful. That's not, you know, not that's published in a lot of journals. And I think maybe today it, it's less important um, because of, of um, you know, a lot of ability for people to access journals anywhere, as opposed to what comes in your mailbox. That um, I, I think there's good research in many places. Yeah, but when when you're the first author on a New England paper and your emails on the front page, like it's like being <laughs> uh, the first story on the eight pm news. You know, it's like <laughs> everybody everybody's watching. Um, and and I relate to you. Yeah, I relate to uh, what you were mentioning about the editing process. There's this. Uh, there's I can imagine. I can only. Im- I have never submitted to the New England, so I, I would know. But I can only imagine in in France. There's this famous quote about like editing, and it's like this author who said. Today was a good editing day. I spent half the day deciding to remove a uh, comma from a sentence and the other half putting it back. Uh, putting it back. And, uh, putting it back. And at the end, basically the whole day, nothing has changed, but that was the whole day of editing. And I can only imagine uh, the number of revisions uh, <laughs> that uh, you must have had to go through. Um, and it, and yeah, H- how do you deal with that, by the way? Because I feel like sometimes you deal with 
revisions and reviewers and like you're moving further and further away from the original manuscript you sent and you have lost complete track as to what the original product looked like and <laughs> and you just hope that they eventually say yes because if you have to backtrack and resubmit the original manuscript to another paper it's another journal it's it's so traumatizing but uh have you ever felt felt that yeah, you know, it changes a lot. I mean, they have a fantastic editing team and they're very precise with language. I think that's one thing I learned from that process is just the degree of precision in which you you write about certain things. And I think also the caution. And one thing about the New England journals, they're very cautious in terms of the, the language and the words that are used to describe the findings. And so that mm-hmm. I think it's very, very important. It was an important learning lesson for me. And And sometimes it gets to the point where they are... You know, for this, it wasn't the case, but for other other publications, sometimes actually the interpretation of the way in which you interpreted the data might be different um, than the ways okay. in which they would, you know, suggest. And I think that, you know, maybe erring more on the side of caution and there's certain things that, you know, some of these journals like subgroup analysis where they're very cautious about how, how it's interpreted and reported and where it's reported. Um, so it, it's it's definitely an experience. And um, and the paper does turn out very different than you know you, the first draft submitted. You, you look back and and it sometimes feels like a somebody else wrote your paper and that's partly because somebody else did edit, do a lot of editing yeah. and, uh, and and just uh, you know the content is the same. I think it's just how yeah. it's how it's reported and the language is. Yeah, is, put um, yourself as second author and put reviewer one as the first author. Reviewer one. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to ask about your experience with collaboration. And I know that sounds silly, but you know, when you're, when you're a first grader, like my daughter, you, you're learning so much about collaboration and sharing. And somehow in medical training, we've gotten the idea by the time you get to fellowship that like collaborating with others, like puts you at risk somehow. But I mean, your entire career, you, you are, um, You've worked with the NICHD, uh, EB-NEO, the Southern Society for Pediatric Research. And if anything, it sounds like those collaborations have strengthened um, your your work. Um, You've gotten a lot of things done um, in a short amount of time. So can you speak a little bit about how um, that has been, uh, you know, um, a cause for good in your life? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I realized very early on that I really enjoyed that brought me joy in academic medicine was working with talented colleagues, you mm-hmm. know, just just learning from others, hearing different perspectives, you know, and, um, and, and getting to see how other people approach things. You know, I always enjoy when I, I somebody sends out a manuscript and, and you read comments of other people have and you say, huh, I, I wouldn't have thought about that. And, and I, I think that's one of the things I really do enjoy about collaboration. And maybe it's a shift, you know, I, I think that you know, today it's really hard to do large clinical trials without a massive mm-hmm. amount of teamwork. And and sometimes there's, you know, one person, the first author that might get the bulk of the credit probably because they really led the design and and, and got the funding and pushed the study through. But there's really this team of people that mm-hmm. that's essential to actually do this work. And and if the end of your day, the goal is to improve neonatal care mm-hmm. and improve outcomes, that, that probably is the most important Thing and, and just being able to contribute to that piece is important. You, you might not get as much traditional academic credit, although I think that might be shifting in, in the views of, you know, depending on where you are. But I think at the end of the day, getting to participate in important studies that, that will imp- impact practice, I think that I, for me is is uh, exciting and I value that. And I think collaboration is one of those where, ways where um, 
you, you can achieve that. And as long as, um, you know, it's done in, in good spirit. And I think I've been fortunate to really work with a lot of wonderful groups. And, um, and I, I also have valued so much the amount of generosity that sometimes collaborators have in terms of intellectual investment in the work that you're mm-hmm. doing, or also um, really wanting to be- improve what you're doing and saying, you know, I think this is great, but have you really thought about, you know, this interpretation or, or are you sure that this is right? Or why don't you look into that? I think that kind of feedback you get from collaborators who think differently than you is, is invaluable. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. So much about the landscape of medicine is, is changing. I think collaboration is definitely key to that, but you actually alluded to something when we first started about how important um, it was when you, in your first job, um, how you were able to negotiate for time for research. And I feel like that's a way that um, the landscape is, is changing potentially in the wrong direction. Um, it seems like it's much harder for new investigators, early career um, NEOs to um, get the support, get the resources, get the funding, but especially the time, protected time to, to do any of that work, um, seeing as how medicine is a business um, and neonatology is no exception to that. So what are the tips? Uh, how, how should new hires or people just out of fellowship how do they? How should they go into negotiations? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's good to have kind of a little uh, vision forward about what your plan is. And one of the things when I negotiated was that I, I was very specific about what I wanted, but it, it and very persistent. I think persistence mm-hmm. tells you tells the other person that this is really important to you. Mm-hmm. And, and and the number one thing on the negotiating table for me was time. You know, it wasn't. Mm-hmm salary it wasn't and that was really you know when you're because i think you know i generally am optimistic person i think division chiefs and chairs in at least in academic medicine really value that that they want talented successful researchers Uh but they also have to make investments with Uh limited resources and and sometimes you might not get everything you want and then I, i would say my advice would be to really relentlessly pursue what you're you said you were going to do you know i think that the struggle is you want to do clinical research and you might not have gotten as much time as you want but you got some protected time and maybe it's for a limited period of time and then you don't take advantage of those those couple of early years and now you're up you know against an uphill battle because you've missed sometimes this opportunity to show you know to your boss this is what i've done and 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 justify more time um, so I, I would say, you know, the first couple of years out to really try to think about hitting the ground running. And, and that requires a little bit of knowing what, you, what you're passionate about and excited about and good mentorship. And, you know, sometimes it's just luck of, of having the stars aligned. And I think for me, it was a lot of luck. I was fortunate to have wonderful mm-hmm. mentors along the way, and I'm lucky for that. But, you know, others might not be as lucky. And so there is this, this bit of kind of good fortune in terms of career paths. The other is persistence. Um, you know, there is... I've known a lot of people over the years that have gotten rejected, you know, time after time. And eventually they start getting some wins and then some more wins and some more papers accepted and grants. And eventually things start to come around. And I think persistence is really, you know, having tough skin and persistence, which is Mm -hmm. a challenge. You know, it's, it's hard to be a good clinician and successful and getting into medical school and getting into residency and fellowship. And then, you know, being, 
rejected all the time when you're in acad- academia. It sounds and, exhausting. Uh, and just, yeah, you, you just got to think like a baseball player. You know, if, if you can get on base, get on base. You, know, you know, one out of every three or four times that, that you're, you're doing good. And, um, and just keep, keep swinging the bat. You got to right. keep trying. That's awesome. Uh, I wanted I wanted to talk about social media and I wanted to talk about Ibinio uh, because I think this is uh, in my in our opinion obviously the future of of sharing information sharing evidence and eventually growing the neonatal community. Um, I wanted to know when what you're you're very active on Twitter you have a, a large following. When did you uh, decide to make the jump and start joining the the neo Twitter community? I was um, I was actually a little bit skeptical of social media, and so I ended up. We had a faculty development seminar held by our school of medicine, and I, I went there, and it was all about social media for careers. I thought that was kind of interesting, and I, I came in as a skeptic. and And this was a person who was an adult cardiac electrophysiologist mm. who would post EKGs and and use them as teaching opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so I thought huh, that's that's kind that's of interesting. Cool. And this idea of educating beyond the boundaries of Emory, you know that. Right. He had this following and people were learning and they were engaging with his work. So I, but the advice they gave me is, you know, give it, sign up and just get a feel for, you know, follow some people and give six months because it might be hard to navigate. And so I kind of came in with a soft entry and started to um, follow people and, and get a little bit of a feel for what the community was. And, um, and then in 2017, I had a chance to kind of join EB Neo and that um, it was an organization for those that you don't know. It's yeah, let's National talk Society. about Ibinio because yeah. mm-hmm. if you don't know what Ibinio is, you're missing out. So let's mm-hmm. let's do it. Yeah, so Ibinio is this, this wonderful organization. Um, it stands for the International Society for Evidence-Based Neonatology. It was founded, I think, in 2015 by three people, um, Stefan Johansson and Mikhail Norman, who are at Karolinska mm-hmm. in Sweden, and Harish Koplani, who I view as was, – um, most recently at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who I, I think epitomizes evidence-based medicine. Really, the society was to improve kind of evidence-based neonatal practice. And part of the big mission was, you know, there's all this research out there, but how much of it is actually reaching the, the babies we care for in the unit and to kind of reduce that lag from kind of knowledge to translating into care? Mm-hmm. And part of the tool, and this wasn't the initial kind of uh, initially how it started, and I think a big credit to people like Nick Bamat and Clyde Wright, who were kind of early members of that group, and, and Nick really taking on this effort of, of really using social media as a way to disseminate. And and one of the things, and, and that was my first entree into the organization, was kind of helping to, to disseminate work through social media. At that time, it was, it was a small group, and we've really grown from a wonderful um, cadre of, of volunteer, mm-hmm. all passionate about evidence-based medicine, who kind of curate the literature and do the heavy lifting to keep the busy clinical neonatologists up to date by at least letting you know there's a study out there, here it is. May or may not be relevant, but you know that it exists. You can like it if you if you um, or, or keep track of it and be aware of it. And maybe for really high impact studies, there's conversations that happen that allow people to put these studies into context. And and for me, ninety percent of what I learn about research now comes from Twitter. That's where I find mm-hmm. the vast majority of of new research, particularly things that are very pertinent to what I do, and things that are outside the scope of what I might. Think about there was you know a study mm-hmm. today about whole blood transfusions in mm-hmm. Africa in children and, and kind of the impact of that versus packed red cell transfusions. That would you know that's not something that I would normally see and and, uh-huh. um, and that's something I saw because of Twitter and it makes the world feel a little smaller as well. I've got to make you know 
good good friendships with people outside the U.S. and uh, and get to know them and and um, and it feels like there's this community of people passionate about evidence based medicine neonatology that that I value tremendously and that I I think was lacking before I, I joined Twitter and and before I was part of EB Neo and we we hope uh, you know part of my aim is to try to get trainees and as well as as established neonatologists who might be skeptical to try to at least open their hearts and minds to the idea of, of using this as a key tool for mm-hmm. for keeping up with lifelong learning and evidence-based medicine. It might not work for everyone. It might not, you know, it might. There's downsides to social media, but I hope people realize that this is whole community out there and the sole opportunity to learn and stay up to date that um, is occurring in social media that um, that they might be missing out on if, if they're not already engaged. Well, obviously, yeah, I we think, agree I think with the you. Biggest- <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. And what you're doing is great. You know, also, you know, the podcast, you know, just, just ways to make it easy in the lives of busy people to stay up to date on what's going on and have a good feel for where the field's moving and what's going on. You know, it's a great way to, you know, on your drive home, just, mm. just not, uh, you know, kind. <laughs> to, to, to feel what's going on. So I love, I love I what feel you guys like, do. Yeah. When we talk about social media, I'm trying to implore to people, like, you know, when you go to a conference and you leave like rejuvenated because you've had all these interesting conversations. Um, the same thing is happening every day on like a slightly smaller scale um, on Neo Twitter, where if you pull it up, uh, somebody, especially you, you know, is talking about something um, and you can learn. So, I mean, it's, it's a problem, right? Cause you're starting to spend a lot of the day on Twitter, okay. but, but you're learning a, a lot, learning a lot. So I'm glad you're able and to. And it's, it's impressive that, you know, when you look at some of the metrics of actually how broad the engagement is, mm-hmm. that there's a, actually a large community of people that are engaging, interacting. And I do hope that for trainees that, um, that this is part of their part, you know, of their education in neonatology is, you know, outside the walls of their institution. And the best way mm. to do that, you know, there's, I think today, lots of opportunities, you know, webinars, podcasts, um, but but that social media is something that makes it easier. And I, I think it, it probably also requires some constraints because there can be an addicting nature to that. Mm. And, and um, you know, I think just to be cognizant that thinking of it as a tool for engaging and learning um, and, and to separate that out from kind of all the other parts of social media that might be part mm-hmm. of your personal life that that kind of you know that is um, is very different and, and to try to think of this as, as one of those tools that you can use to, to you know for lifelong learning and to keep up with evidence-based medicine and what's going on in the field. Yeah, and another aspect of social media that I think goes very much underrated in the professional sphere and, the, and in our case of neonatology is the ability to effectively network with people. I mm-hmm. think it used to be that you you, you purchased a, a registration for PAS and you were hoping to bump into this person and mm-hmm. talk to this person. Um, and I think what people are not realizing is that in today's day and age, you can literally connect with anyone across the globe in the field of neonatology and have meaningful interactions um and and just it and it's kind of it's kind of amazing i mean i remember uh when i was studying for the boards being able to just like shoot message to dr um dr martin and saying hey like and 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 being able to talk to her which again without twitter i would have never Mm -hmm. been able uh to interact with her i would have had to like find her at a conference and and eventually networking can lead to amazing opportunities um and in our in our case i mean again we we were able to bring them on the on the show and then even do a podcast with them on mm-hmm. for new review so i think people are failing to see the real potential when it comes to what you'll be able to achieve once you connect with uh with um 
other colleagues and and there's and there's a lot of people who are on Twitter who are extremely brilliant researchers like yourself and and there's a long list of of other Twitter accounts that people can follow. So um, do you, do you talk about that when when you um, give talks about social media about the ability to network and 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 mm -hmm. and this aspect of social media? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I gave a talk recently at the um, American Academy of Pediatrics workshop in Scottsdale. And, and one of the things I asked and um, was, you know, can I talk about the role of Twitter? And, and I put out um, to the community, you know, tell, tell me about the experiences of, um, of Twitter. And I, I think definitely I remember you saying something about, you know, it makes the world feel a little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. And and I shared some of those snippets. Um, but I think networking is It's critical because there's this community of very of people who share a lot of similar passions that mm -hmm. you probably aren't going to otherwise encounter. And reading about them on the page of a journal just seems you know, so distant. Whereas if you're interacting and and you know having conversations, um, it, um, it 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 feels a lot smaller and um, and networking. And, and it's very common. I mean, this might have happened to you. You know, you go to a conference, you say, "Hey, I know you from Twitter." Yeah. You know, you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, you, you've kind of felt like you know the person because you've been what, following them on Twitter and then you see ben them says, in our, person. Our, we, it's our, we have a Twitter friend, <laughs> Twitter colleague. Um, yeah, well, I tell you, your your talk was effective because we saw a big bump in, in Neo Twitter right after uh, you gave that lecture. So I think it's something people are are looking for, right? I mean, it's human nature to be seeking out community. And so I think sometimes medicine can be really isolating. And um, so definitely, I think um, it's been helpful. I want to, before we get totally away, if, if people want to get the full benefit out of the work you guys are doing in EB-NEO, what's the best way for them to connect with that? Yeah, I'd say follow us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And so just to follow EB-NEO, the Um, the Twitter handle is at ebneo. You can also go to our website, ebneo.org. We have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up for, and that newsletter actually tries to capture the key curated articles. You know, if you're trying to look at articles every month, we have the article of the month that's voted on by the community that's selected from our social media editors. And that's, you know, the one article every month that you should should keep up with or try to read. We would say, that, you know, that's the, the one. And then um, there's... Uh, that's, you know, I would say the best um, way to, to engage with EBNEO. And if you're interested in, in learning more, you know, please uh, reach out to me, you know, I'm on social media and we, we'd love to, we've been fortunate to have very passionate people who've engaged with us who do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of curating the literature. Mm. And, um, and there's reviews that we have with the partnership with Acta Pediatrica that um, are, are kind of quick reviews of the literature And we have a relatively new journal club, which is more on kind of education on evidence-based, you know, aspects of evidence-based medicine, maybe getting a little bit in the weeds of things like basing statistics and effect estimates and things that you don't really encounter that that we're trying to make in terms of bite-sized opportunities for learning. So it's... it's um, yeah, the things, yeah, the things that used to shun you away, right? The things you would say, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to even think about that. And, and you guys are doing a fantastic job. It's, I mean, I've consumed that on YouTube, right? Yep, it's on YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. So it's it's really really good. And and if you like me are trying to understand better statistics and and the way things are done, the way they're done, it's it's fantastic for for that purpose. So yeah, great great content. Um. Okay. So then, Daphna, can I go? <laughs> you can go, but I have one topic that I will address when you're done. <laughs> I think I'm probably the same topic. Go ahead. 
<laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't think we can finish a conversation with you which, without talking about education. Um, I feel like you have been asked to give lectures on the gamut of things, including just how to navigate life as a as a neonatologist. Um, and I just, you do such a good job. You bring in humor and you bring in different adult learning styles. So when you're sitting down to give a lecture, like how do you plan it out? You know, what do you, what do you look for to make a, a big impact? Because, because your lectures kind of universally leave, live, leave big impacts. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. I, um, I had the benefit of actually studying one of who I think is the best teachers, which is my current chair, Dr. Lucky Jane. Hmm. And one of the masterful things he does is he starts with kind of a you know a hook of mm. trying to get um, you know speaking a little bit less formally and you know we're so trained in terms of didactics and just mm -hmm. conveying information that we don't get get this kind of intellectual engagement and so that was one of the ways I tried to shift and and I think it's an iterative and learning experience of um, of trying to give educational content that that um, is maybe less overwhelming and more getting kind of capturing people's minds in terms of thinking about um, things. Um, it's a challenge. I would say I still am learning and still trying to figure out, you know, what, what's um, the right style because, because I, you know, for different people have different learning styles and different desires, mm. but um, you know, there, there's one, one, I went to learning how to be better teachers workshop about 10 years ago. And one of the things they said is what every presentation you have cut the number of amount of words on each slide in half mm -hmm. and then cut it in half again. And so that's always been one of the, one of the things I've, I've tried to do and, um, and kind of what do you, what do you really want to learn uh, your, 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 you know, audience to learn in 20 or 30 minutes? Cause after that, they, they probably lost you and maybe even less nowadays. Um, it's it's hard because as a teacher, you also want to. There's so much you want to teach, yeah. and trying to trying to decide <laughs> and cut in. it down is just incredibly hard. I think it's. I, I find it much harder to give a 20 minute talk than to give a 45 or 50 mm -hmm. minute talk. It's so much harder to try to really think about what you want to convey in a in a short time window. And um, so I've, that's um, you know that, that's at least some of, of my philosophy. And and um, I, I've uh, I think I continue to learn, and I always always try to pay attention to to other people who do it really well and and kind of learn their secrets and um I'm sure TED Talks are a great inspiration for for how to do it well. Yeah, I forgot I forgot who I read that was talking about the editing process and says first take out the chainsaw and then take out the scalpel and the rule is always the same chop 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 chop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, Oh, I mean, yeah, and and I think that we we do see that when we have uh, word counts, commitment on abstracts and stuff like that, we're like, all right, we have we have to make this as impactful as possible in two hundred words or less. Um, and and there's always opportunities, and and I think also people tend to forget that powerpoints and slides are meant to be um, visual aids; they're not meant to be the actual presentation. You're giving the talk; you're talking. Um, yeah. Yeah, one of the favorite things which we you know you don't get to do at conferences is chalk talks or you know digital okay. smart boards, which is when I'm when I'm rounding on our yeah. um, resident teaching unit. I, you know, I love that idea of just uh, you know having a chance to kind of yeah concept think, mapping and, and like, being able to actually let the process unfold in real time, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and and kind of getting feedback from learners in real time. I think that's been the challenge in the Zoom, which we're getting back to meetings is just, you know, it sometimes feels like you're talking into this blank screen and you never know, you get no feedback of, you know, is everybody asleep <laughs> on the other side? Are they, are they paying attention? Is this actually meeting their needs? And um, so it, it's, uh, I think it's a learning experience. It's, it's challenging, but uh, for those that are starting off, I would say, you know, just start with, if you're asked to give a resident, you know, give, give a small talk to, mm-hmm to a, a smaller group, you know, um, treat it like you're giving the most important talk, um, and, and, uh, and try to, and one of the rules I received that I got from another colleague who I admire a lot was never give the same talk twice. If you're mm. giving a talk and you give that same slide deck again, you you've missed the opportunity. Really. You should think about how can I update this and improve this and refine this and, and kind of thinking that, and that's always been something I I've, followed with me is always there's something i can make better awesome um okay now you can have it i i I, we went over time but that's okay (laughs) uh and my last question did have to do with education i think Hmm. you're somebody who has mentioned and and is committed to what you call lifelong learning right and i think for people who are at out out of training um what is the key to being a, a a good lifelong learner I think it's a it's a challenge, you know. I, um, I I find just with all the things in our lives, you know, where do you put keeping up with the new literature, with you know, family and work obligations, and you know, making in time for dinner. Uh-huh. Um, and and so I think early on, I would say is think of strategies that work for you. It should be very personal of what works for you. That might be sitting by the fireplace in the winter and reading your stack of journals, or, or perusing through that, or it might be scrolling through Twitter and and maybe at least having some things that are on your reading list or, or attending conferences or, or a mix or listening to a podcast or something that kind of works for you mm-hmm. and try to make it a routine. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's, that for me has been, you know, just try to build this as part of kind of, you know, just like you have to go around and you have to sign notes. It's just, no, nope, you know, there's not many people who like writing notes, but that's just what you have to do. It's just mm-hmm. part of your, your, your uh, career. And it's important to you, to what you do. And, and, and that way, you know, kind of keeping up with learning should be part of what you do. I think going to one conference a year, you know, that, that is just not going to, I think that's going to be insufficient, you know, that there's just too much going on in our field and too much information coming. And um, so um, fortunately there's lots of opportunities out there now, especially with groups doing webinars. And so just finding what works for you and kind of sticking with it and, um, and, and also to manage it, you know, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Um, sometimes it can feel that way, but really to say, you know, if I can just do one article a month, Let's start there, and and um, and then maybe move you know, move forward from that. Awesome. I like that. Um, mm-hmm. One per, getting per, getting better one percent every day it will lead to significant improvement. So um, it's a very Zen approach, I think, that you have mm-hmm. to lifelong learning and and this idea that the goal of of Zen philosophy, right, is to always be a student. Um, and I, so I, I really I really like that. I think we should never really see ourselves in a different light. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, w- I was giving a talk recently on transfusion medicine in Dubai and I, you know, I, I would have thought everybody in the world should, would probably be aware of the planet two trial, you know, platelet transfusions. And, and yeah. that is not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people that, oh, is that really the case that, you know, that actually there's worse outcomes with more, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think we under, sometimes underestimate um, the importance of kind of keeping up and, and um, of, of kind of 
getting getting knowledge from PDF files on a website to, to people's minds and actually to the care they provide. Yeah, is, I think it's a big challenge. There's still a lot of obstacles. It's still, despite how easy it has become compared to a hundred years ago, there's still tremendous obstacles that need to be addressed. Um, yeah. yeah, and work and to be done. We are very <laughs> conscious of that. We're conscious of that at the incubator as well. Um, Ravi, this was, this was fantastic. It's always a pleasure talking mm -hmm. to you. Um, you are so easy to talk to and, uh, sure. it's difficult to do a one hour interview with you. I mean, there's so many, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you're just mentioning you work on, uh, blood transfusion. It's like, we haven't even touched we didn't on even that, get to but talk anyway, about it, yeah. I think if, <laughs> no, if anything, I, I'm hoping that people will be intrigued and will start seeking you out on Twitter and look out for your names on various papers and, uh, really mm -hmm. reach out to you if they, right. It's okay for us to share your Oh, uh, absolutely. Yep. I mean, yeah. And, and, Careful what uh, you ask yeah, for. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so thank you. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Yeah, we're so grateful. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Time. Thanks. And look forward to listening to more of, more of your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast or through our website, at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.